Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Andy. And we are here with an awesome guest today. He is the co-founder of Novar Media and author of Fully Automated Luxury Communism. His name is Aaron Bastani. Hey, Aaron, what's up? Hey, what's up? Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for coming. Aaron, we're sorry you couldn't be in studio today. You're in London, is that correct? Uh, that's not correct. Actually, I'm on the south coast. Uh, uh, I'll be in, in London tomorrow. You're in Brighton. I'm not in Brighton. I'm, I'm in a place called Portsmouth. Okay. Those are the two cities I know. Right now. So. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Do you recognize this voice? Silence. Um, I suppose not. Okay. You interviewed me many years ago at the Social Bloom occupation. Oh, wow. About Occupy well, I Wall that. Street. I, I, go on. And it was it wasn't Novaria Novara, but it was yeah. basically the the product you were doing before Novara, as far as I can tell. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember we we chatted in the upstairs room, didn't we? I don't remember, Do remember? what yeah, level we so. talked on. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I besides, yeah. besides the deeply intellectual level of the the conversation, of course. Andy loves to blindside people with these trick questions about how they met. It's amazing. Well, I met Rona at the same occupation. Oh, yeah. oh, uh, tell me the, more. Where was this occupation? It was a occupied, uh, <sighs> like the the Chinese that the Oriental study studies building that had like a lot of Chinese artifacts. Yeah, it was crazy, actually. There was loads of really valuable stuff there, like silk prints from the 18th century and stuff. Yeah. Nice. Not loads, like several. And what was this occupation about? Um, Very similar stuff to what was going on in the US a couple of years earlier, um, particularly on the West Coast. But yeah, across the US, basic stuff, marketization, student debt, uh, the neoliberal university, outsourcing, privatization, precarity for students and workers alike. Or, I'm sure your listeners are, are quite familiar with it. But it, it ended quite violently because actually we were evicted. I mean, we were living there. We were squatting there effectively. And I recall we were evicted maybe three or four days before Christmas. And um, I woke up about six o'clock in the morning with guys coming through the, the roof, through the ceiling, in fact, mm. with balaclavas and sledgehammers. Yeah, geez. So, yeah, it's quite a, quite a traumatic period of my life. Well, it sounds... However, it was great meeting you. <laughs> you too. It sounds like you were in some very lush surroundings. Uh, I don't know if it's a good segue to talking about luxury communism. How how were all the artifacts at the end of that? Did they survive? Yeah, they did. They did. Um, I mean, in retrospect, we possibly should have nicked a few, but no, they everything was fine. I mean, it wasn't like you know, it wasn't kitted out, but there were. I recall a few sort of Japanese silk prints up on the walls that maybe we should have taken. We should have taken Jeremy Bentham's corpse. Yeah, we we. I mean, that would have created a great furore. We should have done precisely that. That's, That's one of the weirdest right? things, actually, about like London universities. All the corpses. corpses? <laughs> well, yeah, just Jeremy Bentham's corpse being like publicly visible is kind of odd. Doesn't he open. sit at that is like weird. he's like at the board meetings and he's like supposedly a vote or something? Apparently, yeah. I don't know if that's <laughs> true or not, but apparently that rules. They should keep the corpses in the downstairs jerk off basement, like we do in America. <laughs> <laughs> they actually if you if you're if you're uh, if your listeners sort of google jeremy bentham head um because the head is like it's like it's the most screwed i don't know if i can swear so i'll just kind of be you can swear. rain it in i can swear it's kind of the most fucked up thing i i, I i've ever seen face to face it's like something from a horror movie and it was um it was on again it was on public display i mean what why would you do this quite bizarre well they work for lennon so 
can't argue with that. That's true. Yeah, but I think the Lennon preservation thing actually worked. If you look, I mean, Jeremy Bentham died a little bit before, so it kind of, yeah. I don't think um, uh, his embalming was as successful as Lennon's. Mm. Mm. Well, being a goth socialist podcast, this is something that we're going to prioritize into the future so that we can see the skeletons of all of our leaders just right there hanging out for all eternity. Well, you see, I think fully automated luxury communism would be more interested in just reversing the aging process. So we all Mm. live forever. But But will it bring back all the dead of history? No, sadly not. You're not. Uh, it's, you're not an immortalist. I'm not. Um, I'm not Ray Kurzweil, who is, you know, engaged in longevity studies in order to bring back my dead father, which apparently is why he does it. Which is again quite, quite strange, given the responsibility he has at Google. Uh, I didn't know that. That's really sad. Um, so let's talk about something more cheerful. Uh, we are going to record this. We're recording this on the eighth. We're probably releasing in about ten days. So. Anything you want to say about what's going on in Parliament with Brexit and Bojo and the absolute boy is might be a little bit dated. But why don't you just talk as if it's 10 days in the future, the glorious 10 days and and tell me what you hope will happen? Well, you know, it is very difficult to say because 10 days ago, where we are now would have seemed, you know, highly unlikely. We've had effectively 10 days, two weeks of protests. Of course, Johnson tried to prorogue Parliament two weeks ago, which kind of um, which catalyzed this response. And for your listeners, proroguing is effectively he was using powers that are normally invested in in the monarch uh, to suspend Parliament. Now, Parliament has something called recess where it, it can dissolve itself for holidays, for conferences, or it can be prorogued where it's suspended, but not suspended by itself, suspended by the monarch. We have something like uh, that in the U.S. It's called Joe Roganing. <laughs> tell me how that works it's a trip man it's it's a lot cooler than what you're talking about <laughs> hey i liked his interview on, uh, with bernie sanders it was quite good a little quiet for me but it's, it's good that 10 million people have seen it did the ultra left jump on that like oh my god bernie sold out he's now with this ultra. i mean i i, I completely get that joe rogan's alt-right adjacent but like how, how did that go down with like the ultra left you know I honestly think that that position was probably in the minority. Like Good. most of the people who I know on the left want Bernie to win. And in order to do that, he's going to need to reach a new audience. And the media is so fucking polarized. Like nobody trusts anything outside of their mm. echo chamber. And Joe Rogan is one of the few platforms that is seen as neutral somehow, even if he's not. So like the downwardly mobile white millennial dudes who listen to his show and maybe are flirting with a kind of weed adult libertarianism or whatever who'd never listened to bernie talk before they're all of a sudden saying oh yeah he's actually got some good things to say he seems like he's gonna help us out so like most of the people who i know were all about that that's really good to hear i mean the number the numbers are crazy right for that show so yeah yeah it's insane it's crazy man Dude. Well, we got to get you on there, but uh, sorry to interrupt with this. Uh, we have a lot of Joe Rogan uh, side talk on this show. We it's should try. Very to... influential yeah. in our field. It's really um, he's huge. In I the mean, room. Look, he had the interview with Bernie. He had the interview with Elon Musk. He had the interview with Alex Jones. He had the interview with Milo. Like these are all kind of people who look back on that stuff in like thirty years and go, "Wow, that was really mm-hmm. that was a really fucked up period." Yeah, he also had on Cornell West, which was awesome. Yeah. But he's got yeah. to have on Jake Flores and Aaron Bastani. 
<laughs> and, and us. Me. Yeah, and me. Well, wow, I'm sure all things in good time. I mean, he's already had on my black swan, Barry Weiss. So mm. I figure it's only a matter of time for me. So let's uh, let's try to. I, I'm anxious to hear your your Brexit prediction. So you were right. you were talking about the proroguing. I think that gets mm. us into uh, like I don't know. It seems so long ago now. Um, but but keep going. Yeah. So um, what what you guys maybe don't necessarily understand because our constitution is really really strange it's basically a series of gentlemen's agreements from the 15th century um and obviously the problem is when you have somebody who doesn't want to play by the rules or the conventions rather like um boris johnson that creates problems uh so the prime minister the executive the government in the us it would be the president's presidency the executive is invested with a bunch of powers we call raw prerogative powers so technically really they are the powers you'd associate with a monarch it gives them extraordinary power uh, and because the kind of the counter balance of the monarch themselves is, is purely ceremonial um, when they want to take the mickey, if Boris Johnson wants to create new bank holidays, if he wants to, you know, create 30 new lords, um, if he wants to pick certain bishops, if he wants to declare war, technically you don't really need a, an act of parliament to do that. So there's an extraordinary amount of um, uh, of power invested in, in the person of the prime minister. He's abusing that. He tried to prorogue parliament, suspend it uh, in order to help get through or take us closer to a no deal. The reason being he wanted to basically put a, um, a gun to the head of MPs so they would vote for his withdrawal agreement. Um, and that backfired. Uh, and then 21 Tory MPs, basically his first day in Parliament, he had a majority of one, a very small majority, but a majority. Uh, on his first day in Parliament, he lost three votes. Bear in mind, it took Thatcher 11 years to lose four votes. It took Tony Blair 10 years to lose four votes. Um, so Boris Johnson lost three in his first day. Uh, and he had 21 of his Tory colleagues uh, lose the whip, because, which means they're no longer technically Tory MPs because they didn't vote with the government day later, Philip Lee, another Tory MP, uh, crossed the floor to join the Liberal Democrats. So he's he's basically gone from a majority of one to a deficit of 43, which now means they can get no legislation through. Uh, so effectively, the Tories aren't really the government anymore. Um, and if the Liberal Democrats, one of the minor opposition parties, were willing to back Jeremy Corbyn as prime minister, he'd probably have a majority to form an interim government, call a general election, suspend Article 50. Uh, but they won't do that. So at the moment, it's kind of like a Mexican standoff. Um, but, you know, the Liberal Democrats, despite only having 17 MPs, actually have a disproportionate amount of uh, influence in what happens next. I'm going to be honest, I do not understand anything that's going on with Brexit, but I hope that that was enlightening to our listeners. I've listened to I listened to a lot of Novara on this subject, mm. and so I do understand most of what you said, but there right. is a point in these Novara episodes that I just, my mind just goes somewhere else, and I have to like go back and listen again, especially when you start talking about like what happened in the 16th century that led to the... The kind of gentleman's agreement that is now being broken or whatever. It's uh, crazy. But... We don't have a const when we don't have a constitution. It's crazy. We don't have any rights. We leave the EU if we leave the and the EU has a bunch of sort of legal institutions attached to it. Um, some some technically, some informally. But this is what the Tories want to do. They want to pull us out of the European Courts of Justice, the European um, Human Rights Act, mm -hmm. um, EHRC. Actually, it's called, um, which is embodied in British law. They want to pull us out of all of that. And so, it, you know, 
it starts to look quite ropey. You know, the, 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 the idea that Britain is a modern 21st century democratic, um, you know, state is there's, a, there's an edifice there. And a big part of that edifice collapses if we leave the European Union and leave those institutions. I was just listening to Tisky Sour today, one of the excellent shows on Novara Media. And uh, there's something about some legislation is going to hit the House of Lords and the House of Lords is going to have to not, is probably going to knock it down. There was a proposal put down by an amendment put down by Stephen Kinnock, who's a, a Labour backbencher. To basically, it was Labour MPs who basically want to vote for some kind of deal because they're in leave seats. And the tellers, each side has to have a teller. These are the people that you know determine how many votes have been for each side. The government didn't provide a teller. Therefore, the, the amendment automatically goes through. But because it's an amendment, the Lords can automatically vote it down. And look, this makes no sense to you. It makes no sense to me. Um, and that's a problem. That's a problem for socialists, because obviously we British, the British parliamentary system is almost intentionally designed to make it obscure and completely incomprehensible. Because, of course, how can you democratize and challenge a system which you don't understand? Um, so, you know, it lends itself to creating this class of of technocrats and esoteric kind of, uh, um, you know, criminologists but just for Westminster and yeah for most people I mean you're working 48 hours a week you got your kids you got a small business or you're working minimum wage or whatever I mean Jesus you need like a PhD even people with PhDs in political science don't understand this so yeah it's it's arcane for a reason I think mm-hmm. what about the sword what's the deal with that you mean the mace <laughs> oh yeah I'm sorry my bad <laughs> there's probably the a mace. sword shows how much I know the sword's in the stone and hopefully Jeremy Corbyn can pull it out the mace. So, okay, so like, okay, um, the we had a revolution in Britain about 140 years before you guys did, but because um, because it took um, place in the context of a religious, a sort of religious um, schism, it wasn't necessarily a revolution. It was a civil war, but there was a there was an uprising which ultimately led to the execution of the king in Whitehall, Charles the First. We had a kind of republic. Obviously, nobody really knew what a republic was like, so we called it a commonwealth, and uh, it didn't really have much democracy. Uh, although there were certain there were certain groups in the Civil War, the Levellers, the Diggers, the Ranters, who were all various sort of proto-communist or radical democratic factions within the Parliamentary Army. Very, very interesting time. Let's go through all that. Kind of irrelevant. What it meant was that Parliament had sovereignty and that Parliament could act without. Um, could act uh, without the um, the complete oversight of the king. And so even today, when the queen goes to open parliament every year, the queen's speech is basically when the government outlines their, their agenda for the year ahead, the laws they want to pass. Um, the chamber in which the monarch gets sort of thro- robed uh, above where they sit is the death warrant for Charles I. Um, as they walk into parliament, there's somebody called Black Rod. They say to Black Rod, can I come in? They have to have permission from MPs to even enter the uh, the Houses of Parliament. What are they, vampires? So if you want to understand this whole bizarre <laughs> hybrid we have, kind of democratic, kind of not, you have to sort of understand the politics of the mid-17th century. So that's where the mace comes in. Or read J.K. Rowling, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes, or read J.K. Rowling. I actually think, probably to be honest, the English Civil War is a lot more interesting than J.K. Rowling. But we're still awaiting for a good Netflix series on it. Well, it really does tickle my gothic sensibilities, so you got me there. Yeah, I kind of, I think once we have a Labour government and we can sort of, you know, we take over the BBC, 
I want somebody to write, you know, this is the great thing. Because imagine, imagine socialists having control of Netflix in the United States. Hell you know? yeah. So we could create like a 10 part series about the, you know, about the levelers. We'd get Tom Hardy as honest John Lilburn. We mm-hmm. could make a series about the Haitian revolution, get uh, Idris Elba as Toussaint Louverture. These are all the things we could do with the Labour government. Very exciting. Mm. That does sound good. So speaking of the exciting possibilities of the future, um, let's talk about your book. Um, Fully Automated Luxury Communism is, I'd say, best known as a meme that's been going around the old internet for a while. I think sometimes we see it as fully automated gay space luxury communism or some variation thereof. And I have done some research on this meme for the book that I'm writing about Mm. the Posadas movement. And as far as I can tell, you invented this meme. Is that correct? Those words in that sequence, yeah. I'm going to take responsibility for it. Nice, nice. Wow. No, your meme did not fail me this time. Yeah, I think so. Although um, the idea of luxury communism... Um, that that can be traced back to kind of like German autonomous movements in the early 2000s. Mm. So, gotta yeah. give credit where credits due. So, what is fully automated luxury communism? Let's just start with a really basic question. Uh, fully automated luxury communism, I think, builds on a certain vanilla orthodox understanding of Karl Marx. Uh, Karl Marx viewed um, socialism and communism as two separate things. He understood socialism as growing out of capitalism in so much as you change the relations of workers to the means of production. Uh, But it was, however, not a new mode of production. So a mode of production can be found, say, in feudalism. A mode of production can be found in capitalism. A mode of production can be found in communism. So socialism for him was about changing relationships to means of production. Communism was a new mode of production. So just as capitalism is different to feudalism, he he suspected or he claimed that communism would be different to capitalism, different social relations, different technologies, different relationships to nature, different forms of daily life. Um, And fully automated luxury communism effectively makes a very, I think, a, a quite a sensible case, really. It looks at the crises that are defining the 21st century, demographic aging, automation, climate change, breakdown of our economic model. Um, and it says that market capitalism probably can't survive these. These are probably existential. It then looks at the emergence of a range of technologies which under- attenuate or undermine key characteristics of the capitalist market economy through the price mechanism, uh, uh, elsewhere with regards to AI, robotics, and what that can do for the extent to which uh, workers can demand payment for their labor, uh, whether it's renewable energy and creating deflationary trends in regards to the price that energy can command. Uh, and then finally, it looks at how we can have a political project which latches onto these technological possibilities. And rather than subordinating them to the interests of the ruling class to profit, um, how they can help us engage with the problems outlined in the first third of the book, demographic aging, climate change, inequality, but also how we can move to that new mode of production. So it's effectively saying uh, we have a political project, we change capitalism to a socialist economy, and eventually we'll move to something like communism because principally technologies like AI and robotics uh, start to really attenuate um, some of the, the features uh, that Marx viewed as inherent within capitalism or even within socialism. So capitalism is defined by selling your labor for a wage. Uh, it's also defined by production for profit or what he called exchange value. Um, in socialism, you still have scarcity like you do in capitalism. Uh, you still have to work. Uh, 
It's just that the value you create through your work is not alienated. In communism, he says, and this is in Capital Volume 3, he says that the sort of distinctions between mental and physical work disintegrate. He says that the distinction between work and play end uh, and that you, 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 you achieve a measure of post-scarcity. So communism for Marx is quite distinct from, from socialism. And so the book is really looking at that as the end point and saying, well, in the, in the next 50 to 100 years, in the meantime, what's the politics that we can practically engage with, but also take us to that, to that end destination or rather that, that beginning, because we shouldn't view communism as the end of history, but rather the beginning of real meaningful human history. Hell yeah. That reminds me a lot of what we read about and talked about in our uh, Gilles DeVay episode on communization theory, where the distinction between work activities and other activities kind of collapses. And, you know, somehow we find fulfillment through striving for, you know, the greater good survival, happiness and manage to grow potatoes in the process. Yeah. But um, what one thing I really like about uh Falk, as I think we can call it from now on, Falk. And uh, we'll, we'll have some more like critical questions uh, later on in the episode. Of course. But it's a uh, rejection or an imminent critique of the very bourgeois futurisms of people like Elon Musk, which we'll get into. Mm-hmm. And also it's trying to reimagine communism not as this very austere thing, which is, you know, when, when Davey talks about it, like Jamie said, he's talking about like, oh, you're going to be be able to have all these delicious potatoes and like that's not necessarily the most inspiring thing to people to to farm potatoes um so you i, I remember i don't know if you made it but there was a, a falk meme where uh the grim reaper is just going door to door and one of the doors is anarcho-primitivism mm. and that really was a, a very big tendency in the 2000s and, yeah. and late mm. 90s and people don't really talk about it the same way anymore they're still in- interested in environmentalism and direct action and uh but it's it's no longer the ideal that it once was, and I think these kinds of um, reimaginations of how good life can be uh, mm. if we seize the world for ourselves um, is is very refreshing for that reason. Yeah, I think I mean going back to the Dorvay stuff, and I think Jules Dorvay and that that tendency um, is really really useful. I think their critique of liberalism is very powerful. I think their understanding of 20th century, or well, a lot of their understanding of 20th century socialism is very powerful. One of the things I would disagree with them, and I think that's obvious from the book, is that um, I think that their fetish for insurrection, and there's nothing wrong with insurrection in certain contexts, obviously, but there's a certain fetish there for insurrection, for riot, um, for ecological collapse, which which could all happen. I mean, you know, ecological collapse is happening. Um, it's going to happen unless we do something quite dramatic. But I think there's a, there's a certain fetish for that, which they use as a substitute for revolution. So so, oh, the, well, there's a revolution because we'll have the non-reproduction of capitalist social relations because there'll be a permanent, you know, insurrection and rioting and death. And and you see that in kind of in the aesthetics, for instance, of ruin porn, you know, in the sort of yeah. just after the crisis of 2008-9, uh, 2007-8, really. But, you know, the, which sort of heralded the, the beginning of the Great Recession after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, etc. There was this there was this aesthetics all of a sudden around around rioting and around ruins. And I think generally speaking, that spoke to uh, the lack of a, a North Star for, for people on the left. And so, I, yeah, that's where I kind of, dis- and I, I view the sort of Duvet stuff as as really not having a formidable uh, expression of revolution or revolutionary imagination in the 21st century. Because all they can imagine in, in stopping capitalism is its non-reproduction yeah. rather than something else. 
What, you don't find a hundred years of primitive surgery to be an inspiring vision for the future? <laughs> well, a hundred years of primitive surgery? What's this? I mean, I don't think I'm familiar with this. That's kind of an inside joke. I don't know if you... Wait, who was it who said that? It was, um, we went we went to a, a sick conference in Marseille many years ago. Oh and, wow. And one of the um one of the communist theorizers. I love said, those guys, uh, yeah. The first I had hun- their first journal. What happened to them? I do not know what happened to them. I mean I think they're they're still doing something. But yeah, they, they said something that like the first hundred years after the revolution is gonna be uh misery, including primitive surgery, which means, you know, Civil War era surgery without anesthetics and that sort like, of thing. Cool, sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> but also, that's just not. See, this is what I, I I just don't think that's true. Like, so let's say we get a world even of, of six degrees warming, right? In a world of six degrees, and that's obviously hundreds of years, could be thousands of years away. The Earth is five billion years old. The margin of error is obviously very big. But let's say it's a couple of hundred years away. Um, world six degrees warmer than today uh, too much methane in the atmosphere to, for things to breathe you're definitely if you're based in in most the united states you ain't going to be able to do much agriculture same for southern europe you know really the only places you can do large-scale agriculture is the north and south poles we're still going to have very wealthy people getting away with things we're still going to have exploitation we're still going to have um the ultra rich being fine and you know i talk about it in the book the film elysium is a great example of that mm-hmm. to the extent that they literally create an off-world colony you know, you know, like, what, what's the logical conclusion for gated communities? So, I, yeah, I don't I don't buy the idea that we are all equally affected by the collapse of environmental systems or capitalism. Well, we're clearly not because it's already begun. And, you know, the very wealthiest people in Greece, they're generally doing much better than the poorest. Right. Uh, so that's where I see a sort of lacuna in their thinking about 100 years of primitive surgery. Well, it's nice to know that you're on the side of Matt Damon in his quest to ruin Jodie Foster's beautiful lesbian planet. <laughs> I am, sadly. So uh, before we get into more theoretical uh, fun questions, I think let's, uh, let's bring it back to another concept that's important in your book, and that is the third disruption. So mm. you talk about how there have been two already. And yep. we're now living through a third one that's going to be a total paradigm shift in how humans live. So what's the third disruption and why is it important to us? Yeah, so I've, I've chosen the word disruption because I want to appeal to Silicon Valley douchebags before your, before your audience kind of smirk at my choice of words. Um, it, 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 I'm a historical materialist. I'm a Marxist. So what does that mean in terms of disruptions? It means that human history isn't just a, a series of sort of accidental events nor is uh, human consciousness, how we organize society, detached from technologies or um, geology, climate systems, etc. So the first disruption is about 12,000 years ago. Um, it's the first sort of technological revolution. There have been humans with our, the similar brains to us as you and I for about 200,000 years. Yet they're not really doing very much until about 12,000 years ago. And that's because of the arrival of a bunch of technologies or the generation of a bunch of technologies, uh, farming, agriculture. We understand how to breed in and out certain characteristics for flora and fauna. That is known generally as, you know, that's not a contentious point. That's known as the the agricultural or the Neolithic revolution. That change in what Marx would call the, the technological base permits the new superstructure of cities, language, culture, mathematics, legal systems, complex societies, slavery, you name it. Uh, And about 12,000 years ago, the global human population was around 5 million people, the population of Ireland today. Uh, By 1800, it gets to a billion. 
So clearly that, that new technological paradigm allows us to sustain far larger populations of human beings. Second disruption is uh, early 19th century, really the late 18th century. And it, it's based around the technologies of the steam engine and fossil fuels really coming together. Steam engine's been around for a long time. It existed before then. But um, what steam engine, what unbolted steam engine turns it into the backbone of the Industrial Revolution? Uh, and I sort of I talk again about how that change in technology creates new mental conceptions, new forms of identity, new forms of global togetherness or or actually in many instances, um, non togetherness, um, new relationships to nature. And of course, it massively impacts our climate system. So if we're talking about the Anthropocene or the Capitalocene, which is really a, the idea that, the, that a geological era begins where humans become the primary catalyst in changing climate systems, it's around the 17th, 18th century. So again, I think there's lots of data sort of back that up as a big historic shift. Uh, and then the third disruption, uh, just as the second was kind of twinned around uh, steam power and then electricity and fossil fuels, uh, the third disruption is AI, general purpose robotics, um, coupled with renewable forms of energy, which would create as, as big a shift in, in, in economic and technological possibilities as the second one did. Um, so the, I, I argue that there's a kind of, there's a different mental landscape for us to imagine um, a socially just politics, given those changes in the technological base over the last 50, 60 years, which is how old these technologies are. You know, they're not science fiction. The first photovoltaic cell is used by, the, uh, by NASA, actually. Um, it, well, it's not NASA, I think. Was it NASA at the time? Yes, it is. With the Vanguard 1 or 2 satellite, you know, transistors have been around a long time. Lithium-ion batteries have been around a long time. So these technologies have been here for a long time. But just as with the steam engine, you know, new common steam engine was in the 1710s. What's this, what steam engine is the 1780s, 1790s? Something similar is happening with these technologies. So in the next 10 to 20 years, They'll increasingly find themselves in the Internet of Things, highly, highly capable computers, um, increased automation of, of everyday life, of, of many jobs, first through deeper machine learning, eventually with the arrival of a general artificial intelligence is plural. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's the third disruption. And you're right. It's kind of trying it demures from very strange capitalist realist articulations of contemporary technology by, you know, the Silicon Valley ideologues, etc., well, how I understood it, and this is, you know, maybe an oversimplification, but the third disruption is just the incredible concentration and distribution and ability to process information, um, especially with the, you know, exponential expansion of smallness and speed of digital technology. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, for, for many things. So it, the primary thing about it is information becoming an increasingly central factor of production. Um, and again, that's one of these throwaway lines from kind of capitalist ideologues over the last 10 to 20 years. But I, I, I try to, to put that in perspective and explain what it means. You know, a great example already is pharmaceuticals. You know, in pharmaceuticals, the value of pharmaceutical drugs, huge industry, is not coming from the labor. It's not coming from the land. It's coming from the information. How do, how do the capitalist class ensure that they can retain profits from it? Well, it's enforced scarcity. Uh, and the, the, the increased centrality of information as a factor of production will mean that more and more of the economy looks like that. Um, but yeah, in addition to that, you know, renewable energy is, is, is clearly a major part as well, mm -hmm. because, uh, you, you know, information can be, you know, incredibly cheap. But um, for now, we, you know, we have transportation systems, we need to keep warm, we need lighting, etc. It's all missing the missing chain and the, the missing link in the chain, rather. So you've got energy and you've got information potentially being 
you know, getting ever closer to zero, I actually think that's inevitable. Um, then, you know, somebody could, somebody has the rejoinder, well, resources aren't infinite, right? Land isn't infinite, which is a very good point. We'll never have infinite land. Although the, the Economist magazine actually talking about fully automated electric communism, if you Google economists, fully automated electric communism, they talked about space exploration as meaning that we have post-scarcity and land. I'll put that to one side. Um, you know, we, we may be able to extract significantly more minerals than we presently do once we start to look at mineral resources beyond our own planet. Again, I'm not saying that's happening tomorrow, but you only need to look at the agenda of the ruling class, you know, the creation of legal frameworks for, for space exploration and, and resource extraction. You know, Luxembourg's providing legal frameworks for it. We have businesses engaging in this. Barack Obama signed something called the Space Act in 2015. Uh, so, you know, Japan has already sent two landers to asteroids and they've come back. China's doing something similar. The US is looking to go to a to an asteroid next year with nasa so this is in train uh, and so if that is a plausible if that is a plausible enterprise resource extraction from beyond our planet then you're looking really at ever cheaper um, energy labor because of automation the plummeting cost of information and resources and so that creates a new context i think for again how do you how do you construct a, a radical left politics in the 21st century yeah i i like your um uh your the, the essay you wrote um responding to elon musk's plan of mining asteroids which was that when uh space uh landed in the falk term fully automated space communism is that when, when it first arose i have no idea i think people obviously people I mean, clearly asteroid you know uh, high, high power robotics and deep you know deep machine learning and deep learning is already here you know clearly solar is dropping in price all the time so that's already here so people latch onto the kind of weirder more zany stuff which clearly asteroid mining is so um so, yeah, no, I think that's probably when it did happen, yeah. Um, so the point that you make that I really like is that, okay, so say Musk is able to do this thing, which, you know, pe people, uh, especially like in Reddit type of communities, like uh, nerds who, are, who love NASA, they love the idea of exploring space, not just nerds, but just, you know, it's a vision of the future um, that, uh, that really unites people. And it's sort of been co-opted by Musk and SpaceX and entrepreneurialism mm. in Silicon Valley. And so when he has this idea of like, well, we can just send drones to mine asteroids and get all these minerals and we we know, you know, like all the misery caused on Earth by all, all this mining. And you respond, well, if you're going to make a profit off that, then you're going to have to keep the supply of what you mine artificially low in order to keep it marketable. And you say it just doesn't make any sense. Like if we have this technology, we should just use it to abolish mining on Earth. Right. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, so <clears throat> obviously um, in the words of Peter Diamandis, I think is one of the people sort of in, around this area. He said, in terms of resources on our planet, we need to understand that we presently are sitting on a crumb in the middle of a supermarket, right? Which is how we should understand the solar system. Now, um, the idea that we can go beyond our solar system with any even technologies anytime soon, highly unlikely. But automated um, landers going to near-Earth asteroids and returning with resources. We, technically, it was achieved by the Japanese with something called the Hayabusa lander. So we can already do it. The question is, how how cheap can you make it and what are the returns you can get? Now, let's say that can happen. Let's say the returns can be very high. The last thing you want to do um, if you're selling a product is by saturating the market with massive oversupply. And there is such a huge concentration of mineral resources in our, in our solar system. That's precisely what they would do. So their incentives for, you know, accessing this wealth and giving it to us would be very similar to pharmaceutical drugs. You know, 
we right now everybody in the united states could access very cheap insulin ultra cheap insulin uh, but the point is that's not the case because people in some places need to make money off other people mm-hmm. uh, and it would be a very similar dynamic with regards to mineral resources you know so um, so yeah the exact same sort of imposition of scarcity would define that that sort of commercial relationship too so the way you talk about the resources available in space, they sound kind of infinite. But uh, I mean, the the number of asteroids is finite. So what happens when we run out of asteroids <laughs> to mine? Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's a very interesting question. Um, but we are looking at huge, huge amounts of resources. Huge. Um, uh, if you look, I think the site called the asteroid in question is called Psyche sixteen. And this is the one that the and it's actually a planetoid. It's a small planet. Um, the larger an asteroid, because of course of how gravitation works, uh, they start to become perfectly spherical, like a planet. Uh, Psyche sixteen is a planet. Um, it has quadrillions of dollars worth of iron, quadrillions of dollars. So we can't really, you know, it's very hard for us to understand the resources available to us. And I mean, technically, yes, they're not infinite but i mean it's as close to infinite as as the material universe is ever going to get um so uh, i i don't know maybe that'd be a question for sort of several thousand years time uh but you know one one estimate says that if you get all the mineral resources amongst near-earth asteroids and you divide them equally amongst every person on the face of of the earth each person would have access to around 200 billion dollars worth of mineral resources so um and this is all in the book it's all cited uh so you know technically that's true uh but i don't think it'd be a practical problem for a long time yet um so shifting gears a little bit you you had an article in the new york times this summer where you talked a lot about the impossible burger and other kind of plant-based meats as a solution to one of the major environmental crises which is factory farming the immense amount of uh cattle uh and livestock in the world which, you know, that themselves create methane. And also we, you know, a lot of the rainforest is being burnt down for uh, for like to sustain them as livestock and also to grow soy to feed them. Mm-hmm. And and you see uh, things like the Impossible Burger, this plant based meat as a something of a solution to that. Um, and since you wrote that article uh, here in New York, we've got and, and I'm a vegetarian and I love fake meat. So this is very big for me. We've got the Impossible Whopper at Burger mm-hmm. King. We have a bacon, egg, and cheese McMuffin kind of thing at Dunkin' Donuts. And soon I think we're going to have uh, plant-based meatball subs at Subway. And, wow. And, Are they uh, tasty? Because I've never actually had an Impossible Burger. The Impossible uh, – I do like the Impossible Burger at White Castle. At at, at Burger King, it's, uh, it's a little bit too big and salty for me. Right. But the White Castle is a really nice size. And the Dunkin' Donuts Beyond Sausage thing I, really, I do really like. But, you know, we're not trying to buzz market – uh, fast food chains here on the show. <laughs> I guess my question is, uh, my serious question is, now that all these fast food chains have these plant-based options, are we one step closer to fully automated luxury vegetarian communism? Yeah, I think that the, the, the technology is a major has a major role to play. So um, I think in the US, the average person eats around 3,500, 800 calories a day. Um, clearly they have very you have very high per capita meat consumption compared to the rest of the world if the whole world now let's just let's just let's just adopt the ideology of sort of you know the of the elites of the united states we want the whole world to have the same standard of living as you know a citizen of the u.s purely in terms of um, agricultural you know production that would be necessary 
that's not possible. We would need about another five planet Earths if, if, if everybody on Earth ate like the average American. <clears throat> and that's not just because of you know how much they eat, but it's because of that intensity of the, of the amount of meat they eat. So um, if everybody ate the same amount of meat and calories as the average American, the world could feed with its biocapacity about 2.5 billion people. Um, if everybody ate a similar diet to South Asia, you're looking at about, with obviously far less meat or negligible meat, very little dairy, no eggs, um, you're looking at about 10 billion people. So <clears throat> the extent to which we eat animal products is is massive. Um, and uh, if you look at, for instance, land and water use for meat, uh, it's huge. You know, most of the crops we grow as a species are to feed to other animals, which we then eat. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's obvious when you think about it, but and, and by a huge and by a huge factor as well. Right. It's not two or three times. It's it's a huge factor. Again, it's in the book. I think in the US at the numbers obscene, it could be 10 times more, you know, crops or 10 times more. Yeah. Crops are being used to feed meat and are then given over to humans. Maybe you guys happen to import more vegetable and vegetables and fruit from Mexico, possibly. I mean, things like avocados and stuff, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you just import that stuff. But that's generally how it works. In terms of land and water, we can't, we can't eat like we presently do. So even if you don't have a radical sort of political perspective on this, even if you're not a socialist, these technologies are absolutely critical. Um, what I would say is that you know, their adoption, particularly in the global south, won't be quick enough to mitigate. You know, we need to completely transform our economies away from fossil fuels within globally speaking within 30 years. You know, in the meantime, we need to be rewilding. How can you rewild if if global meat production is going up? That that can't happen. So we need to massively reduce the amount of meat we're eating now. Uh, and this stuff within a market mechanism with Impossible Burger, or, you know, a Burger King or a that's great for some people in the global north, but we need to make it a kind of mainstay of, of, of global food production because places like China, South Asia, I mean, China, you know, Chinese demand for milk, for instance, in the next couple of decades is, is going to double or triple. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa's population is going to is going to double by 2050, could quadruple by 2100. At the same time, per, meat, uh, per capita meat or milk or egg consumption is going up. So it needs to really be front and center of that conversation about about the global food market. Mm -hmm. um, and somebody like somebody at Impossible Burger will say, well, the global meat market, I think it's a trillion dollar global market. They'll be going great, you know, and in, in a way, fantastic, you know, in a way, you know, fantastic that quote unquote innovators are, are meeting that demand. Uh, but I, I would argue that in order to roll it out more quickly and to create more socially just outcomes, you know, you, you, you do need at least a minimal um, in the interim period in the sort of uh, in the sort of radical social democratic vision, which is viewed as the bridge to fully automated luxury communism. Um, there's certainly a role to play for the state. Like in Britain, for instance, uh, there's an argument about uh, free school meals for every kid, right? Um, it's not a universal policy anymore. It kind of used to be Labour at the last election fought on a platform of free school meals for all children. Uh, you know, I would say that's a great opportunity to use cellular agriculture, synthetic meats, right? There should be no meat in providing these kids free school free school meals. Great example, right? Or with the NHS, they procure meat, uh, meals, uh, feeding lots of people. The same could apply through, you know, or universities, etc. So these public anchor institutions could play a very important role in transitioning our eating habits very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, but that, that would necessitate a sort of measure of state intervention that we're a bit more familiar with it here in the UK, but in the US, certainly, you know, not that familiar recently. Well, the state certainly intervenes to take away those free meals. Like I think we, we have a kind of free meal program in the United States that gets degraded year after year. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, yeah we'll talk a bit more about your uh, your conception of um, how this is going to happen towards the end. Um, do you want to take the next question, Jamie? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm wondering about your use of the term luxury, because mm-hmm. I think Andy and I both admire the optimism of your vision. Um, it gets away from the kind of austere bunker communism or back to the land or primitivism that we've seen from other communist thinkers that just is not going to get that many people on board. (laughs) But at the same time, I wonder if uh, luxury is the appropriate framing here, because to me, that word signifies a kind of status relative to other people and excess that I think we need to get away from in the post-capitalist future. Um, I also wonder about the need for degrowth if we're going to solve the climate crisis, although maybe that's what the asteroids are for. Um, (laughs) But just like the idea that we wouldn't need to give up anything at all in order to make communism, especially here in the first world, um, and that we wouldn't need to make any changes that anyone would define as a sacrifice. Like, I wonder if that's responsible or realistic. Like, I would love to get rid of cars and just build high-speed train lines everywhere. But there are people who would feel that as a loss, just like ramping down meat production. Although, again, it sounds like we have taken care of that with lab meat. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. So um, uh, I obviously believe there should be significant constraints on the total autonomy of individuals to behave as they wish. So I'm not uh, I'm not a, a, a market libertarian, right? I believe in those constraints. The idea of luxury communism doesn't mean that everybody can have as much of everything as they like. What it means, um, at least for me, part of what it means is, is firstly, ideas of communal luxury. Uh, so if you look at, for instance, um, in 1952, now bear in mind, Britain was involved in a, in a horrific war, Second World War, as was the United States. But obviously, there was destruction of, of fixed capital here, of factories, of you know the Blitz and so on. 1952, and your listeners can listen to the, uh, Google this, there's an estate in central London called the Golden Lane Estate. It's built in 1952. And it had a swimming pool, had tennis courts, had a nursery, um, had a badminton court. And uh, it was available. It was social council housing. It was available to Londoners. Today, a room in the Golden Lane Estate in central London, a room, is £1,000 a month. Okay, and that swimming pool is still there and it's still glorious, but it's not working class Londoners that are using it. Uh, Another example, the Festival of Britain. Anybody that's been to London will have gone to the South Bank, will have seen the Royal Festival Hall all around there. It's great. I think it's the most it's the nicest public space in London. It was built in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, like I say, with the with the um, the Festival of Britain. And this was done in a far more degraded economy than what we're presently facing. Or you could go even further back. You know, there are Lido's in Britain, outdoor swimming pools. Um, there's a beautiful one in Penzance. If you again, your listeners could Google it. Britain, outdoor Lido's, L-I-D-O, Penzance, Salt Dean near Brighton, S-A-L-T-D-E-A-N, um, Hackney Lido. These were glorious, glorious sort of public pools, right? And this is the 1930s. So the equivalent today would be like um, every small town, um, most municipal or all municipalities having the equivalent of like a heated infinity pool. You know, the technology is, you know, that, that's 80 years ago and we were doing that. So I think for me, that word luxury <clears throat> is important for a few reasons. Firstly, the idea that we can't do that um, is an is an uh, is an effective ideology. The idea that we can't do that. If in 1952, 
Britain could have council housing with swimming pools and tennis courts for people. Surely we can have something quite similar 60 years later. And I think the claim that we can't is an ideological claim. And it's the left um, taking uh, contemporary capitalism's claims and its truth at its word. And that's not true. And we need to see through that ideology. So that's why I like the word luxury. Uh, again, you know, look at or you look at um, in Russia. And this is obviously not a social democratic context. It's, uh, you know, in the USSR, it's a communist or a state socialist context. They created cultural palaces very quickly after uh, very quickly after the revolution. And there's an account of an American. I can't remember his name now, but he goes to Russia in the early 1920s. He goes to St. Petersburg. He goes to Moscow. And he says these recreational facilities available to ordinary people are far better than anything in the United States. Um, why was that? It was because, you know, people decided to deploy resources, land, labor, capital in a different way. Or the Moscow Underground, you know, very opulent. You might think it's in bad taste. You might think it's garish. But clearly, that idea of, you know, there's nothing too good for the working class. That's not a particularly new idea. And it's something I'm really trying to, you know, I'm trying to rehabilitate. And I think it's very important because it's actually true. You know, it's actually true. The idea that we the idea that luxury flats right now are actually luxurious is patently absurd. They're ridiculous. They're not built to the same uh, standard as what council housing was 60 years ago in this country. So it's an ideological claim. And I, I don't think that's true. So I want to reclaim the idea of luxury, not necessarily a surplus, a surplus of time for sure, um, but not necessarily as a extravagance or being better than anybody else. It's something, you know, an infinitely uh, infinitely better quality of living than we presently do. Because, I, I, you know, I, the idea that we presently have a high quality of living in, in, our, in our societies, people on median incomes, is ridiculous. I think, and, and I think in 20 to 30 years' time, people will look back on it, just as we look back on the final decades of the DDR and, and East Germany. People say, wow, they had that amazing technology available to them. They had such incredible possibilities, and they thought this was as good as it gets. Yeah. I mean, I guess it could also involve a redefinition of luxury, because for a lot of people... Uh, free time is a luxury. Control over your life is a luxury. Mm. I mean, it should be normal, but it's not. Um, so maybe that could fit into there somehow. Yeah. And to me, the concept of luxury is, is bound in with this idea of just waste of just, you know, spending money for the sake of it, buying something that's far too expensive, like a, a purse that costs $10,000 for some reason. Um, but, uh, but what you're talking about is is having the good things that are could theoretically be available to everyone if if it wasn't for the market keeping it from them. Yeah, um, and and I, I there is a really strong left tradition on this stuff. So even like the Paris Commune, um, you know, the, there were a number of leading artists involved in the Paris Commune. When William William Morris looks at this across the Channel, you know, it really influenced his thinking. The idea that um, you could have uh, artists engaged in sort of political struggle. He, you, you could view this almost as you look at the German ideology about, you know, hunting in, in the morning or, you know, being a literary critic in the evening. And so all of a sudden, an artist is not somebody whose social function is to create art. An artist is somebody who is a person who, among other things, creates art. Uh, and so... I think I want to situate luxury within that same understanding, right? You know, luxury is not serving a social function, you know, uh, in upholding or expressing conspicuous consumption. Clearly, luxury under a new set of social relations means something, means something quite different. Um, you know, it means happiness. It means joy. Uh, but it also, it, but again, we're Marxists, right? Because those aren't, abstract, we're not Hegelians. Those aren't abstract 
intellectual or or metaphysical or or purely mental spiritual states of mind that emerges that happiness that joy that contentness comes from material reality which you know that does necessitate you know free childcare for all fantastic large you know uh, uh, flats in the center of town for everybody uh you know commodious large uh, um, uh, enjoyable pleasurable forms of public transportation you know so I, I would i would happily call that luxurious you know mm. and it's certainly better than the luxury on offer from contemporary capitalism to 99 percent of people well uh one sort of follow-up playing a primitivist advocate i guess so so one thing i think about with with foodie culture for example and i am a bit of a, a reluctant foodie myself um as you might have uh, been able to tell by my enthusiasm <laughs> for the Impossible Burger, um, and is for that dumpsters? Sure, um, I'm I'm a very particular kind of foodie in that <laughs> regard. Like I think what a lot of people are searching for when they're you know go to these like food fairs um, and and uh, you know the, the, these new conceptual restaurants and try these special dishes and stuff is a, is a kind of authenticity or you know novelty, but also authenticity. They want to try food from around the world. They want to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, eat in different ways. Uh, they want, you know, new tastes and new experiences. But I think they also want th- something that can't be provided, that you can't buy, which is they want the uh, the, authes- the authenticity and, like, uh, really the love that comes from, like, a home-cooked meal or a meal shared with friends. Um, something that you just can't really get from the market. Um, and I wonder if some of the luxury that you're talking about um, some of the necessities and, uh, and, and services uh, that are being provided, um, although it's, you know, this, you know, as long as there's a state, as long as there's a state with, with these mass surpluses of wealth and stockpiles of wealth, it should be provided to the people. But there's still going to be this level of alienation so long as it's just this objective process of redistribution of wealth. So I'm um, going sort of. Uh, ask, ask me substantively. I, I understand what you mean. But so ask me a question in regards to how that relates to Falk. I guess um, the good life that we're talking about, like it can be theoretically right now and which is, has been true for at least 100 years, like theoretically, yeah. this good life can be provided to the masses uh, yeah. through a, a just re- redistribution of wealth. Yeah. But is that really a good life? And is that really communism? Are you saying that these things will be as toys given to children with mm. no understanding of where they come from, hmm. Andy? Well, I think people understand where they come from. They just, you know, it's, there needs to be a subjective element to this. That's that's kind of where I'm working towards. So I'd, I'd agree with you that probably since, let's say, I probably since the early 20th century, we could have just reordered society in such a way as to have what Marx would have understood as socialism, right? I think for most of the world, I think that's a pretty fair thing. So you don't even need the new mode of production. You just need to change how workers relate to how they create value. And pretty much everyone everywhere can have a nice standard of living. And I would would agree with that. And I would say socialism. And that's why I make a distinction between socialism and communism. Socialism has always been possible. You know, socialism is always possible because all it is, is about is about reorienting and changing and transforming relationships within capitalism. I think communism is now possible, whereas it wasn't 100 years ago, because of changes in the sort of technological base relating to the third disruption. Mm -hmm. So I I, I don't disagree with that. What I would say, though, is what I would say is uh, the World Health Organization by 2030 expects depression to be the the global sort of the leading health burden globally. Uh, So clearly something is and look, people have always been unhappy. Um, You know, you've got medieval or early modern writers talking about melancholia, et cetera, et cetera. But clearly something strange is happening where it's becoming such a prominent 
integral part of mass social life clearly something strange is happening uh, and so i don't think that under communism you know people will still uh, cheat sometimes on their you know their lover they have a falling out with their friend or they have a row with the family etc but w- what what would be different under socialism is that socialism let's start with socialism everybody has access to the resources by which they can alter their own lives right so i would say that liberal ends the idea that we're all uniquely capable of determining who we want to be are impossible that socialist means uh so that's the big difference and i don't think you know i don't think socialism is a place where there's an absence of pain or of unhappiness or of you know suffering but it's it's a different political ordering of society. Just as, you know, under feudalism, I'm sure there were plenty of people who were happy and there were plenty of people who were unhappy. Or even, you know, before the first disruption, before we have recorded human history, before the agricultural revolution, I'm sure there were some very happy hunter-gatherers and some very, you know, unhappy ones. Uh, but generally speaking, if you were to ask me, would I like to have been born in a world with anaesthetic with hot water, with electricity? I mean, I'm pretty happy to have been born when I am, generally speaking, yeah. Uh, I probably would have been like to have born maybe 30 years earlier, <laughs> but generally speaking, I'm pretty happy with it. So the idea of, you know, I don't I don't necessarily know how, quote unquote, authenticity relates to um, communism. But what I would say is that clearly the social relations which emerge out of late capitalism uh, are leading to, you know, significant amounts of inauthenticity. You know, do, do I I mean, I'm the book is concerned really about economic and technological change mm-hmm. you know and, and and because i'm a marxist i would say that the forms of social consciousness emerge from that you know it's like a like a, a build put, a building on strong foundations um so although i'm not just a, a technological and economic determinist of course uh, so you know it's a, it's an important question but i think it's an adjacent one well i think the point that you've made super well in the book and i, I don't think uh you know having read a few criticisms of it i don't think people give you quite enough credit for this is that you recognize the incredible amount of um the the way technology and the social order can change very rapidly in a situation of like war for instance yeah yeah Uh, like for example i I was reading on the the creation of of, uh, nuclear weapons and this was something that was theoretically possible for decades and physicists had talked about it and it took the start of world war ii to get all those people together for the Manhattan Project, and they made it happen pretty quickly. Yeah. And that's just one example. Like I, I read somewhere that like uh, you could be trained to be a doctor within one year in the United States because there was a shortage of doctors. So we have the ability to do these things that so far only like war and crisis and re- like rebuilding yeah. after war has allowed us to happen. And now we're facing this different sort of crisis, which is not going to be this immediate war, hopefully not, but this like slow decline into climate catastrophe. I have the the intuition that there's not going to be a state solution to uh, to this problem. This is something that's that's going to call for a grassroots social reorganization. I you know I'm not totally wedded to that idea, but I I don't see how um, this automation that you're talking about is just going to naturally happen. I think it needs to be like capital <laughs> needs to be pushed towards that automation. And even then, I'm worried that that automation is just going to be this kind of mystical objective force. Of course. I mean, so in the book, I, I talk about how, how does history cha- How does history work? How does it unfold? How do things change? And I talk about the historical process as being an ensemble of separate fields. So social relations, relations to nature, technology, forms of daily life. And 
my argument is that each political tradition historically has privileged one of these bases or spheres um, to the detriment of the rest. So a technological determinist or Elon Musk would say, we just need to change technology. The rest will look after, after itself. He's wrong. Um, a deep green would say, we just need to relate to nature in a different way. Forget productive processes. Forget organized labor. Uh, forget about how we relate to humans. We just need to you know, think about how we relate to nature and change that. Uh, an anarchist. Obviously, I'm, this is a I'm offering a pastiche of how these traditions work, but I'm 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 offering an archetype to make the point. An anarchist might say um, we just need to focus on everyday social relations, and then everything else will sort itself out. We don't need to work around uh, how do we create new technologies to adapt or mitigate the crises of the 21st century. Um, Marxist-Leninist would say we just need to change relations to the means of production rather than working out how we create new technologies. Um, a great example is the Soviet Union, you know, the creation of the Soviet Union with Leninism, you know, um, uh, uh, the Bolsheviks were huge fans of Taylorism. You know, they wanted to accelerate um, the development of the USSR and they were looking at how American capitalism was um, uh, uh, alienating value from American workers and they wanted to imitate it. So, you know, so there's, there's there's the ensemble of different things you need to look at and technology clearly is just one part of it. You know, we do need new relationships to nature. We do need new social relations. We do need mental conceptions, new forms of daily life, uh, which is why the book is called Communism. You know, otherwise I would just call it the future of technology. Uh, because I want to couple these technological changes to a broader political project. We do need to relate to nature in such a way that we don't view it as distinct from humanity. Mm -hmm. We do certainly need to stop eating animals. We certainly need to view ourselves as part of a sort of globally connected species. We certainly need to understand that human civilization is subordinate to global, global you know, uh, climate systems. All of these things matter. Uh, but, you know, my point is... If you're looking at the possibilities for a socialist project in the 21st century, the technologies alighted upon um, are, are really important because we don't we don't just have to. There's not just a it's not just a question of do things get better or do things stay the same because of these technologies other things get better or things get worse. Um, and I think there's a great book by a chap called Peter Fraze, you know, Four Futures. He talks about that very well. Mm -hmm. You know, because these technologies create new vistas for surveillance, exploitation, alienation, immiseration. Or they, they allow the possibility for something else. So I'm, I'm certainly not a technological determinist. Uh, but I think, like I say, if I'm trying to do anything with this book, and it's, you know, obviously I believe, I believe every word I've written. But at the very least, I would want it to be a provocation to people to say, um, reinvestigate certainly ideas of luxury um, and how it relates to capitalism and to what extent do you view the limits of possibility as, uh, or, or to what extent should you view the limits of political possibility actually as capitalist ideology? And actually, the facts aren't facts. They're just politically contingent um, and they suit certain interests. And also, yeah, how, how should we relate to technology? And, and, and it, the, the investigation of the technologies is investigating them in the here and now. You know, I'm giving case studies about what's happening already. You know, a, a dog breeder, David Ishii, applying to the FDA in 2017, saying he wants to edit the genome of his Dalmatians to get rid of the gout uh, that they all suffer from. FDA press release a few weeks later saying we're going to treat edited genome data as uh, equivalent to a patented pharmaceutical drug. There's a reason they've done that. And so the battle for us, for people who care about, well, how do we ensure that people in the future don't have sickle cell anemia, cystic fibrosis, Huntingdon's, Parkinson's, that's the technology. Now you can say, well, you're a technological determinist. No, I'm not. Because in, in Britain with the NHS, we're going to benefit from those technologies. In the United States, where you don't have the NHS, you won't. And that difference is a political one. But talking about the technological possibility is a way of opening up that political conversation. And how about certain things which are presented to us as inevitable aren't their political choices? 
Are you saying we need to risk the imagination of a new kind of possibility? We do. Well, you know what? I, I, I'm gutted I've already printed the book because that wasn't in there. But, you know, that would have been good. That well, should have been the opening uh, opening line. Little little nugget for all you Schultz heads out there. That was from Peanuts? <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. It's from when, uh, what's his name? Uh, the Peanuts guy he ran for president. It was really stupid. Howard Schultz. Oh, Howard Schultz. Oh, yeah, okay. I thought you were yeah. talking about uh, the Charlie Brown guy. No, that would be funny, though. Um, Kamala, hey, Kamala, I think Kamala Harris is even worse than him, though, isn't she? Uh, nah, they're he both was pretty bad. bad. He, no, I think he was worse. Yeah, I got to say that. Yeah. The thing she said the other day, though, I was watching it. What was it? I watched uh, my, my colleague at Navarra tweeted it, Michael Walker, and she was just stumped. Ah, uh, what was it? And it was just kind of on the spot question. Her response. I mean, I thought it was as bad as Howard Schultz, but maybe that was just like a maybe she only slept three hours, you know, on the on the spot. I she mean, was bad at her worst. She's probably as bad as Howard Schultz. At her best, yeah. she's better than Howard Schultz. So, one of our favorite subjects here at the Antifada is praxis. Um, and I want to talk about it. So, you have a quote here. This is not a book about the future, but about a present that goes unacknowledged. The outline of a world immeasurably better than our own, more equal, prosperous, and creative. is there to see if only we dare to look. But insight alone is not enough. We must have the courage for that is what is required to argue, persuade and build. Now, I think the missing step in the way a lot of people talk about these things is expropriation. And I'm glad that you gave some credit to the Marxist Leninists who probably focus on that to the exclusion of everything else. Um, The need to change the relations of production um, and expropriate the world that the world that we built, really, the world that yeah. is ours, despite yeah. having been stolen from us. Um, but but here it sounds kind of like almost uh, some like 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 we just need to persuade on the marketplace of ideas, um, mm. which is, I think, demonstrably not ever going to be enough to cause the kind of power shift and total paradigm shift that we're going to need to to make it happen. So. Uh, what what would you say about uh, the primacy of class struggle and the need to expropriate above all else? Because like the primary obstacles, as I see them here, are political. Yeah, so I, I agree with expropriation. I mean, there are obviously instances of expropriation uh, where it's not as... Uh, it doesn't look like it did under, you know, there is instances, for instance, post-war social democracy did certain amounts of expropriation. The, the point was the political framework within which it happened, uh, as history tells us, uh, was that that was pretty temporary, you know, temporary. Um, you see something quite similar with the Meidner plan in Sweden. You know, that would have been a radical expropriation of wealth from the capitalist class. Uh, it doesn't work. And I think that's a really important thing to hold on to. It doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? Because it doesn't command the ideas don't command enough hegemony within within the Swedish working class more generally. Uh, and, I, and I think that's really, really important. So in the UK, and I'll, I'll clarify what the minor plan is. Um, in the UK, we're doing something quite similar. I mean, Bernie's also talking about it. Uh, the idea that workers will own a percentage of the businesses that they work for. Uh, Labour and John McDonnell are talking about this. The FTSE 250, the 250 most valuable companies in the on the UK stock exchange would have to give, I think, 10% uh, of equity uh, over to workers and it will sort of gradually grow right and we can we can have a, a conversation around how much it would be right obviously the more radical you are the higher you want it to go but this policy 
has caused consternation for um, uh, the capitalist media. The FT had a front page about it a few days ago. I remember talking to economists um, last summer when it first came out, and they were they they were so angry because they said, "Look, we can deal with putting the tax rate up slightly. We can deal with an estates tax. We can deal with you know using these tools." But what this policy represents is fundamentally infringing private property rights. And, and that's true. That's absolutely correct. That's exactly what it was. So, you know, I think expropri- we, we, we do need to understand expropriation within a, within a broader term. You know, it, could, it, can mean, um, it can mean the seizure of certain state businesses, which I'm, you know, in certain contexts I'm perfectly happy to do. If there's a no-deal Brexit and we can't uh, create pharmaceutical drugs for everybody, we need to obviously nationalize uh, GlaxoSmithKline and, and put it under public ownership and create the drugs that people need in this country. I'm perfectly happy to do that. Uh, but in terms of what Labour should be arguing for in the next general election, um, bringing BAE Systems, it's a weapons manufacturer, bringing that into public ownership. They have 20,000 engineers using them to create um, technologies that actually solve problems rather than create them. Um, you know, And then the stuff like the Workers' Ownership Fund. So expropriation absolutely matters, but it doesn't need to – again, let's, let's try and challenge some of the assumptions we've got from the early, tw- early 20th century about what that necessarily looks like. And then – about persuasion, we do need to persuade because all, like, those ideas, as was the case with the Minder Plan, which didn't work in Sweden, they're not hegemon- hegemonic amongst working people. Uh, so persuasion is, is clearly is a necessary precursor. Um, I'm not saying we need to persuade Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, because, and we, I mean, we probably agree on this, yeah. because they have fundamentally different material interests to the rest of us. Uh, but we clearly do need to persuade people who share our material interests. We can't just presume that because they share our material interests that we can circumvent that or ignore it. Uh, if we could, then obviously the revolution already would have happened. Uh, so I think persuasion is, nece- is absolutely necessary. And, you know, the, that's the critical question of the, of the left the last 150 years, since, well, since the 1848 revolutions or since the Paris Commune, is, is the question of organization. You know, we can take the world back. It's very simple to do if only we, we, we found the right organizational model by which to do it. And I think the question of persuasion can't be viewed as yeah. uh, detached from the question of organization, you know. Bolshevik revolution, very successful, uh, had its own organs for popular persuasion. Uh, you can look at post-war social democratic parties. You can look at, for instance, the DSA. You know, that's an organizational form which is trying to persuade sections of the working class to achieve a certain political agenda. So, yeah, persuasion matters. But I, clearly, I'm not trying to persuade people who have different material interests to working class, uh, working class people. So uh, obviously, you're, you're a big supporter of, of Corbyn. Um, that's a lot of, uh, you know... What's interesting about Novara is, is you seem to be a part of this movement to take literally take power in in England in a short period of time. Um, do you see uh, do you see that? Like, are you wedded to any like one way of of coming into power? Uh, is is are you like you know purely a parliamentarian or you know do you think that different methods could work in different places? I'm just wondering like uh, how is it that we're going to take control of the technology and the economy and the state in order to do some of the things that you talk about? Yeah. So I think you do need control of the state to do the things we're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. um, ultimately, um, you, you could have access to just certain parts certain apparatus of the state, which is obviously preferable. You know, if you could have radical socialists who are in charge of a hundred American cities, that's great. I'm not going to say it's a bad thing. 
But ideally, you'd want control of Congress, the federal government. You'd want um, workers being highly organized with high union trade density, being you know represented at the highest levels of government as well. Um, I can only really answer, I suppose, in terms of the British context. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I would a short response would be, yeah, of course, it's context specific. The appropriate organizational persuasion response is different in Britain or Sweden or the US. In Britain, um, and through Labour, you know, Labour has failed as a as a as an instrument of implementing socialism for a hundred years. At least with the Democratic Party, that was never its mission. You know, whereas with Labour, that's historically been its mission: is socialism. Um, explicitly, you know, clause four was gotten rid of by Blair in the early nineties. Uh, but even you know the the, the Attlee governments and so on, and the and the uh, immediately following the Second World War didn't didn't really live up to that. So, and why was that? It was because Labour was a parliamentary socialist party rather than a party of socialists in parliament. What does that mean? It means that their sort of their first their sort of binding fidelity was to the parliamentary system rather than representing uh, party members and constituents uh, to achieve certain socialist policies. So this is why you see this huge outcry in recent years over mandatory selection. Um, this is why you see this huge hostility by the British media and press to a mass membership Labour Party, because they want Labour to remain a primarily parliamentary party, i.e. Um, it's transfixed by the allure of the House of Commons. That's why all that Gothic wealth is there, neo-Gothic wealth, Gothic revival wealth is there, all these paintings, all the gold leaf. It's to make people feel that they are part of that institution rather than being representatives of working class people. So the first the first answer to the question is you have to transform the Labour Party from being a parliamentary party to a party of socialists in Parliament. That's why I back mandatory selection. Um, that's why I back a radical democratisation of the Labour Party. Uh, I would want several million people to be members of the Labour Party in Britain. Why? Because, you know, there's been a great debate about political education in, in, in Labour, um, you know, and it's a, and often it's viewed as uh, let's have classes to teach people what to think. And, yeah, I mean, that's great. Let's let's do that. Fine. But uh, the act of creating a democratic party itself is educational. The act of running for a branch secretary or a LGBT officer or a BAME officer or running as a councillor, those actions then create new uh, possibilities and mindsets for working class people. And that, 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 that activity should be understood as a precursor for those people then doing the exact same things within the state. It's almost like prefiguring how working class people can run the state. You have to democratize and run a mass member party. So that's how I understand we would do it in Britain. Clearly in the US, it's, it's quite different. You know, you have a presidential system. It's not such a, well, it's, it's not, nowhere near as centralized. You have a federal, you know, you have a, a federal system. You have, you know, 50, 50 federal states. Uh, in Britain, if anything, our job's quite easy. You know, you can win a government majority. You can transform the BBC. You can transform the NHS. You can transform the British Army. You know, all the major multinationals are based in London, basically. Um, so, yeah, our job is much easier than yours, I think. But then at the same time, the prize and offer for socialists in the United States, if you get it right there, then obviously that's right. that's world historic. Yeah. I, I mean, we all, we're all very excited about uh, the rising tide of left populism in the world, I think, right now. We all support Bernie Sanders. We're excited about Jeremy Corbyn. Um, at the same time, the jump from that to global, some kind of stateless, classless, communist society is still going to be enormous. Um, 
And I'm just wondering what you think the next step is after that, because we've seen in the past, you know, social democracy uh, is not going to last. It's not going to cut it. Um, I'm not convinced that it would last as long as it did the last time, given Mm. the current uh, conditions of our global financialized market and the way that it's developing. So like what what do you see as the next step there? Yeah, so I mean, the final third of the book, and of course, it's huge. So, you know, some people might be agreeing with me on on something they might be saying, um, you know, I agree with his analysis of the Labour Party. What the hell does that have to do with synthetic meat and, you know, uh, AI? Um, The final third of the book tries to kind of bring that together, uh, which is policies which can be implemented, uh, policies which should be pursued by parties within the contemporary terrain uh, to radically, radically change economies and to sort of move us towards these things. So let me give you a few examples. The first is we need to socialize finance, uh, which is basically the aspect of credit creation should should no longer be entirely subordinated to profit-seeking companies, but rather uh, to things which create social value. Uh, A great example, and obviously if I I say that on the BBC, people go, you know, that's crazy. You know, somebody from the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry, would say, you're mad. But I'll give you an example, which is just really strike, again, how ideological that presumption is. In 2000, I think, seven, eight, um, Cadbury was bought by Kraft. Cadbury produces chocolate in the UK. The bank which financed it was RBS. Uh, and as you're probably aware, RBS was at that time owned by the British taxpayer. Once Cadbury had been purchased by Kraft, Kraft moved most of its tax base to Switzerland. It laid off workers and it increased the amount of sugar in the chocolate so that the the public health outcomes were inferior. So the taxpayer basically gave seven billion pounds worth of credit to Kraft to do this, to lose jobs, to create bigger public health issues and to have a smaller tax base. Uh, And so that's for me, that's completely ridiculous. Uh, and so we need to socialize finance to do something which would be inverted to that. We would need to we want to finance certain projects which can have socially advantageous rather than disadvantageous ends. That's the first one. Then I talk about the Preston model. You have something similar in the US called the Cleveland model. It's actually originally the Cleveland model. Um, how we can relocalize economies, how we can grow the worker and cooperative, cooperatively owned um, economies, how we can reduce regional inequality and i think it's not often talked about enough regional inequality is i think the major reason why we have brexit it's the major reason why we have the rise of donald trump i mean patently if you look at venture capital in the us i think 50 percent of it alone goes to california right now i have no interest in reordering where venture capital goes in the united states but that that does show you where economic opportunities are in the country and and why certain places are left behind and being neglected. And then the third part is Universal Basic Services, UBS. Uh, and I hold this in counterpoint to UBI. And I say that uh, housing, healthcare, education, information, transport should be uh, taken out of commodity circulation, shouldn't be sold for profit. Um, because these are human rights, they're prerequisites for living decent lives. We talked about a bit earlier about having access to resources to live meaningful lives. Uh, that these these shouldn't be subject to to, to profit and exchange value. Uh, and I, I think those three things done at the level of the nation state, and we can talk about this a bit more because you talked about a stateless, classless global communism. Clearly, in the in the uh, in the sort of intervening period, this is done through democratically accountable or with democratically accountable nation states. Um, and that takes us somewhere else. Now, Karl Marx talking about communism, and we've already established communism isn't socialism. We, we could probably agree on what socialism would look like, whether it's in one country or not. Um, Karl Marx says, 
I, I'm not here to write recipes for the cookshops of the future. And to an extent, that's how we do need to understand communism, right? It's like me being uh, somebody before the steam engine and trying to envisage what capitalism would look like or post-feudalism would look like. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even call it capitalism. I'd say it's feudalism, post-feudalism. Uh, and so do we have to have a blueprint for a stateless, classless, global communism? No. Is that possible? I would argue not. Mm-hmm. Can we create a minimal program in the here and now for radical social democracy leading to an even more radical form of socialism? Yes. Should it be conducted on the lines of sovereign nation states? Yes. Should it be internationalist? Absolutely. Because all the crises it's trying to mitigate are definitely internationalist. And I, I know that's not the perfect answer, but honestly, I think it's the best one I'll ever come up with. Yeah, I, I'm, I think, uh, you know, you're reading your book and also um, uh, some of the uh, the work by Christian Parenti recently about the yep. Green New Deal. Um it's actually something that, you know, like it's kind of an antidote to how bleak uh, the political situation is where, you know, there's, you know, like the Green New Deal that Sanders and uh, Cortez have proposed. It's only it's not too far off that from what Parenti's talking about. So there's kind of like this silver lining to how how horrible things are. Um, but I'm also, you know, as a revolutionary communist, I try to I try to steer, you know, be somewhat critical of that kind of pragmatism. And so one critique of of the Green New Deal that we've talked a lot about in the United States is is from Jasper Burns in Commune magazine. And I I know you had something of a response to this with fully automated green communism, a piece Mm -hmm. in Novara Media. Uh, And then another critique of of your schema and the the Green New Deal schema in general is it's this kind of Marxist Keynesianism. And I I think you kind of, in a way, I think you kind of own that in the book, which is interesting. But... uh, I don't know if those are two uh, far apart critiques for you to, to respond to at once, but I just wanted to throw those out there. You know, the, the Marxist Keynesianism thing is a really important point. Um, and this is where I have a sort of disagreement with my colleague, Michael Walker. He would call himself a class war social democrat, and that's his politics, right? Mm-hmm. Which is to say that he's a social democrat, but he understands that the gains of social democracy can never be sort of presumed. Uh, and that you constantly need very militant worker organizing. You want you want to have things that social democrats never really historically liked, close, close shop, etc. He, he would, you know, he, that's what he would say. Um, I would say, as, as somebody who's, you know, view myself as a communist, there's a new, there's another mode of production beyond, beyond this one. Um, and that actually, yeah, over time, we should obviously minimize market interactions. Now, the, the, the point about Marxist Keynesianism, which I would think is, that fits with Michael's politics, Michael Walker's politics. Um, I think, it's premised on, and it's, this is the, the, the shortcoming of a social, social democracy really over the last 40 years, it's premised on um, eternal compound growth. So we will have forever 2% plus GDP growth. That will mean we have a growing economy which pays the tax receipts to do X, Y, Z, right? Whether it's uh, tuition fees, college fees, whether it's um, you know transitioning beyond fossil fuels, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't think that's possible. And I don't think under capitalism, particularly in terms of how we relate to the planet's uh, resources, that that's possible. And so we need to reorder social relations in such a way that I don't think you could call it Keynesian. Mm. Keynesian Keynesianism would look at the planet and say, these are the resources. We need to use these resources in order to create capitalist growth, which will then be used to uh, fund social welfare programs, et cetera. I, I, I don't say that. What's more, 
what's more falc isn't distributivist you know it's not saying let's help and again it's that social democratic presumption which we probably agree is not correct which is let's help business be as successful as possible we'll tax them so that the dividend of that goes back to working people ubs isn't saying that universal basic services is not saying that if you're a landlord and you're currently getting profit from rent game over Right. If you're uh, if you're a shareholder in a company which is um, which owns a bus company or a rail operator in this country, game over. Same in outsourcing with healthcare. Uh, same with information. So internet. Um, same with education in terms of higher education. Obviously, most fortunately, still most public education here is is what is is uh, provided by the state. So I wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't call that Keynesian. Is there still a significant part of the economy which is is not really being brought under? quite significant state control yeah there is uh because as i talk about in the rest of the book you know we want to expand what isn't covered by ubs through worker ownership gradually through socializing finance and through the preston model um but i I wouldn't call that keynesianism because there's not a deference to private enterprise and private ownership and and firms uh like you'd find in keynes historically i think that's a very good distinction to make, and I think a super interesting way of thinking about it. Um, I think we're almost out of time, unfortunately, uh, but it was super good to speak with you and read your book. I'm super excited to spread the Falk gospel to everyone I know. Oh, well, I hope I hope I can come over to the States sometime and uh, catch up face to face, because what you guys are doing over there is it's inspiring for us as well. Oh, oh my god! Fine. Thank you so much. We just, love just Novara the Media. Right? <laughs> oh no, the whole the whole thing. Well, no, it's it's a similar vibe to the UK, right? Because you've got left politicians, but there is clearly this emerging left media ecology, which is is, is working. So mm-hmm. yeah, which it's includes working, the and it's very exciting to yeah. reference a drop that we use on the majority report because <laughs> my brain is broken by my job that I do four days a week. By all the high level ideas, yeah, it takes a while to recover. Oh my god! Tell me about it. So. Do you have anything that you would like to plug before we go? Um, uh, well, other than the book, I guess there's Navara Media, navaramedia.com. Um, we're trying to we're trying to do something I think quite interesting in British media at the moment. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, YouTube, um, uh, at Navara Media on Twitter. So that's about it, really, in terms of plugging. Uh, but hopefully, again, like I say, I'll I'll, uh, I'll be over in the states soon, so. We can, I can plug face-to-face. Hell yeah. Listeners. We could have an IRL Antifada Novara Media Summit. That would be amazing. That would be really good. World historical event. Okay, thanks well, a lot, Aaron. Yeah, that would be really fun. Okay, yeah. thanks, guys. See ya. Bye. Cheers, bye.
song. 